Hi, this is Dr. Nielsen. Welcome to... Hi, this is Dr. Downs, and welcome to Healing Dr. Downs. Uh, next week, we will have our regular intro and outro music. And this is August. My, how time flies. August 28, 2017. And I've taken a uh, break from the radio shows, and they will now resume weekly. And the topic of today's show is Maternal mortality. Yep, that means pregnant ladies who die during the course of their pregnancy. This has actually increased sixfold since the advent of prenatal care in the uh, 50s and 60s. And so you wonder, like, how, how can you kill a pregnant lady? These people are generally young, they're pretty healthy. And certainly, he's got, well, prenatal care under the direct supervision of the doctor, under the very watchful eyes. How can this happen? And when I first uh, talked about this about two years ago, I went into, you know, details. And I'm sure for many people, it's, it's an abstract concept, difficult to grip and grasp. And so uh, what I'd like to do today is just take a look at an actual case study. The medical industrial complex itself published this uh, case study. And in the case study, although although the medical industrial complex did miss it, is plain as day the reason why this person died in childbirth. Not just anybody dies as a result of being pregnant and having prenatal care. It's a special kind of person and, as you might guess, a special kind of care. Well, back when I first checked this, this was back in, Jesus, 1980-something, the chances of dying in childbirth were 1 in 25,000. Let's see what it is. Well, today. Here it is. The U.S. has the worst rate of maternal death in the developed world. Yes, in the developed world. More U.S. women are dying from pregnancy or childbirth complications today than in recent history, causing an alarm stateside. Well, I don't know who's alarmed by this because everyone's still recommending, well, prenatal care. So uh, the word is not yet out that uh, prenatal care is bad for your health. So now it's 24 women per 100,000 live births. In other words, one person, one woman per 5,000 live births. And it used to be one per 24,000 live births. But again, this was like back in the 80s. And it used to be even, of course, less still. Now, again, these are just numbers that are admitted to. Because as with all statistics, there's a very special way of counting them. For example, if a woman dies and the child dies as well, then it is not counted as a maternal death. Why? Maternal means mother. So the person never became a mother. How, how's that for bookkeeping? Hmm? I was pretty impressed with that myself. So the people who die in childbirth, the women who die as, as from the beginning of their pregnancy 
and as a result of their pregnancy is actually undercounted, way undercounted. And even with that undercounting, it's still a you know, pretty breathtaking uh, number. So let's take a look. Let's take a look and see if we can't spot how these deaths occur. Now remember, this is written by the Medical Industrial Complex, not me, not myself. So uh, these are their words. This is, of course, from Medscape Family Medicine. And the title is The Last Person You Would Expect to Die in Childbirth. Now, during part of this, I'm going to tell you my opinion, and I'll definitely separate what I say from what the medical industrial complex says. So, as a neonatal intensive care nurse, this pregnant lady had been taking care of other people's babies for years. The person we're talking about is uh, a neonatal intensive care nurse, and she's now 33 years old, and she's expecting her own baby, and the prospect of becoming a mother made her giddy. In other words, she was enthusiastic. She was thrilled. She was excited. Becoming a mother at 33 was literally, to her, just the best thing that could ever happen. And her husband, Larry, was also the happiest and most alive. You know, he, he was thrilled, too. Now, Larry was a doctor, a physician. This is important. And the chance to create her own family, to be the mother she didn't have, touched a place deep inside her. And here's the clincher. All she wanted to do was be loved. This is important. She wanted to be loved. She didn't want to love. She wanted to be loved. So people who want to be loved, so it's really important to them, are also obedient and cooperative. And so in order to die in childbirth, you actually have to be, this is my, my opinion, me talking, not the article, you have got to be cooperative. You can't die in childbirth unless you cooperate with your doctor. This is important. Okay. And so they talk about her as a teenager. Everybody loved her. Uh, but nobody loved her the way she wanted to be loved, whatever that means. And she first trimester, a little bit of nausea. Pregnancy went smoothly. It went really smoothly. And she was tired in the beginning, a little achy at the end. This is all normal stuff, by the way. I've done my editorial thing. This is a normal, normal pregnancy. This is a healthy lady. Okay. Um, so her, her best friend since high school, who talked to her at least once a day, said she gained what she's supposed to. She looked great. She felt great. She worked as much as she could, at least three 12-hour shifts a week until into her ninth month. And Larry, her husband, a doctor, helped monitor her blood pressure at home and everything was normal. Now, so first thing we have is attitude, high-risk attitude. She wants to be loved, cooperative, pleasing personality. This is bad news. The only way to have a good ending in your pregnancy is to not do what your doctor tells you. That's number one. Next thing, she gained what she was supposed to gain. So she probably gained uh, the one to two pounds every single week. Awful bad news. I'm sorry, not to one or two pounds every single week, but the doctors now recommend that women gain like 40 pounds during their pregnancy. Let's just see what the latest recommendation is. Weight gain. So if you're a normal weight, they recommend you gain 25 to 35 pounds. This is seriously low. This is a very this is not enough weight gain 
to uh, have a healthy pregnancy and to handle any kind of adversity, normal weight gain. If you're underweight, then they recommend you gain up to 28 to 40 pounds. Again, not nearly enough weight to uh, get through the stress of delivery. So we can, since she gained just what she's supposed to, we know that she's anywhere from five pounds to 20 pounds too light when she gained weight, when she delivered. So she presented to delivery a healthy woman with a healthy baby, not able to handle any stress. So she didn't have any wiggle room for any um, stress. When I say stress, I mean any adverse conditions that might ensue. Okay. Now, just for the record, again, this is just my opinion. Dr. Jennifer Daniels, not a licensed doctor, but did go to medical school, practiced for 10 years, was board certified, and did deliver babies, and had three babies of my own. Okay, so there's my qualifications. A normal weight person's got to gain at least 40 pounds, at least 40 pounds. In fact, when I had people come to me for prenatal care, I would not deliver their baby unless they had gained at least 40 pounds. And that's the minimum. That's the minimum. Now, if a lady is underweight at the time she becomes pregnant, I raise that to 50 or even 60 pounds. Why is this? Because I deliver babies at home. And at home, we don't have all these gadgets, right? So this lady starts bleeding, just the blood's going to hit the floor pretty much. And so we needed this lady to show up at delivery with at least two extra units of blood in her body. You don't have that when you gain only 35 pounds, or at worst, hit as low as 25 pounds. So a normal weight lady, they're saying, can gain 25 pounds and have a healthy baby. This is just, uh, it's unrealistic. So if you have any kind of stress or any event or any difficulty during the delivery, and all you've gained is 25 pounds, you've got, um, you know, you've got a real tragedy on your hands. The other thing at 25 pounds that happens is poor milk production. It's a, it's a disaster in the making. But this is the standard of care. This is, this is from, the, from the Mayo Clinic, what they say is healthy. So uh, we've already got this lady. She's set up. She's a pleaser. She's obedient. She doesn't have enough weight on her to handle a disaster or any adversity that might ensue during delivery. Okay, so here she is. So, so things are down, off to a pretty awful start here, and uh, we can expect, uh, you might guess, that things are going to go from bad to worse. Okay, so on her days off, she got organized, she picked out strollers, strollers plural, how many strollers does the baby need? And car seats, plural, she got more than one car. Okay, stocking up on diapers and onesies, and uh, a last pre-baby vacation to the Caribbean, and they went hunting for their forever home, settling on a brick colonial with black shutters and a big yard, and not far from his new job as an orthopedic trauma surgeon in New Jersey. Now, okay, so these are not poor people. because We have an affluent, healthy, obedient woman who is herself a healthcare professional, a nurse, as a matter of fact, married to a doctor. Okay, so she wanted the baby's gender to be a, be a surprise, and she left the nursery walls unpainted, and uh, Despite all she knew about what could go wrong, she seemed untroubled by the normal expectant mom anxieties. Her only real worry was going into labor prematurely. And when she reached 39 weeks and six days, not premature at all, in fact, right on time, they drove to the hospital 
where the two of them had met in 2004 and where she spent virtually her entire career. And if anyone would watch out for her and her baby, Larry figured it would be the doctors and nurses she worked with on a daily basis. Yes, I made the same mistake. I did the same thing. I got pregnant with my second kid. Everything was fine. And I went to the very hospital where I worked with doctors and nurses I worked with for their thinking they would take care of it. And like Lauren, of course, I was disappointed too. So she was especially fond of her obstetrician gynecologist who had trained as a resident at that very same hospital with her husband. And she wasn't having contractions, but she and the OBGYN agreed to schedule an induction of labor. This is totally contraindicated. So if you have a baby and you are on time, there's no reason to induce labor. But whatever. So here's the first red flag. By the way, my first baby, the same thing happened. I was on time, but I was just ugh, sick of being pregnant. And I said to the doctor, come on, can we just get this baby out? And he wisely said, no, no C-section. We're gonna, we will induce labor. So he had me come in for induction of labor. And so uh, her labor stretched well into the next day. Inductions often go slowly, and hers went into the next day. So that means one day, and the next day is two days. Okay. She said she was feeling okay. She's just really uncomfortable. At one point, she's overcome by sudden, sharp pains in her back near her kidneys or liver. Okay, so this is the first sign that things were going really, really bad. But the nurse bumped her epidural up, I mean, gave her more painkiller, and the stabbing pain stopped. Okay, so this was the first sign of a serious problem, and it was ignored. But what was the problem? The problem was Lauren had nothing to eat or drink for two days. That's the problem. The problem here is dehydration, malnutrition, severe in the person who had not gained enough weight and didn't have enough reserve to handle the stress of being dehydrated this way. Okay, so let's just take a look. So inductions have been associated with higher cesarean section rates, but Lauren did well enough to deliver vaginally. And at 6.49 p.m., 23 hours after she checked into the hospital, she had a baby. So it's 23 hours with nothing to eat or drink. When I say nothing, but it's usually minimal. They might let you sip this or sip that. It's a, a well-documented fact that fetal distress and labor complications are caused, repeat that, caused by not giving the lady enough intravenous fluids during pregnancy. And uh, this is what Lauren was the victim of. But we're, <laughs> I get ahead of myself in this story. So uh, this baby was born weighing five pounds, 12 ounces. It's a little bit underweight for an American baby. So this couple's family had been camped out in the waiting room, and now they swarmed into the delivery area to ooh and ah, marveling at how the lady seemed to glow after the birth of her baby. And so her husband floated around his own cloud of euphoria, phone camera in hand, and in one 35-second video, Lauren holds their daughter on her chest, stroking her cheek with a practiced touch. So she'd been practicing on other people's babies for years, and now she was stroking her own baby. And the baby's bundled in hospital-issued pastels and flannel. Unusually alert for a newborn, she studies her mother's face as if trying to make sense of a mystery that will never be solved. 
The living room is buckled in the background in the low-key way of people who believe everything has gone exactly as it's supposed to do, which, by the way, it has gone exactly as it's supposed to. And now they reveal the bad news, which is <laughs> maternal mortality risk is higher in the United States. So the ability to protect the health of mothers and babies in childbirth is a basic measure of society's development. Yet every year in the U.S., as many as 900 women die from pregnancy or childbirth-related causes. And some 65,000 nearly die. So this is, this is uh, amazing. So up to 900 die and 65,000 nearly die. And, and that's huge. It's like 30 times as many women are, the lives are literally put in danger. So American women are, are more than three times as likely as Canadian women to die in the maternal period. And this is defined as the start of pregnancy up to one year after delivery or termination. And again, they don't tell you this, but if the baby dies as well, it's not counted as a maternal death. So this is a very low number. Six times as likely to die as Scandinavians and in every other wealthy country and many less affluent ones, maternal mortality rates have been falling. And so literally, it is more dangerous to have a baby in the United States than in many third world countries. Dangerous for the mother. And this might be why we've, we've in the news over the past few years, many, many celebrities literally leave the United States leave the United States to give birth to their children. By the way, you are listening to Rainbow Soul, Blake Radio Network, and the show you're listening to is Healing with Dr. Daniel. So in the U.S., maternal deaths increased from 2000 to 2014. In a recent analysis by the CDC, 60% of deaths were preventable. In other words, they were caused by the actions or inaction of the medical industrial complex. So had the medical industrial complex done things differently, the, these 60% of these women would be alive. And, and that's even a fraction of the confession, right? Because we know that maternal mortality has increased sixfold. So if it's increased, you know, sixfold, then that means that the, that the number caused by medical intervention has got to be closer to 80-85%. So, as always, what we have here is a partial confession. Yeah. So 83%. So we know just by their own statistics, 83% of maternal mortality in the United States got to be caused by medical care. No question. All right. So while maternal mortality is significantly more common among African Americans, I mean, people with black skin who don't count, well, this is trying to get everyone to, to, to say, oh, it's not my problem. Oh, it couldn't happen to me. And so they put this label, oh, it happens to black people. What that is an attempt to do is to get these other women, whether they're Hispanic or white or Asian, who are also at risk to believe that they are not at risk, when actually this affects every person who gets prenatal care. And by the way, African Americans get prenatal care in much greater numbers because they tend to be, in many cases, on government insurance. Okay, And low-income women, 
So now you think, okay, maybe I'm African-American, but if I earn more money, I can escape it. But whoa, stop, stop right here. This lady who died in childbirth was white and from a high-income um, household. And so unless we can explain at least her death, then these statistics don't mean anything. So she was not African-American. She was not low-income. She was not from a rural area. So these things are meaningless red herrings. And then they say, well, of course, pregnancy and childbirth complications kill women of every race and ethnicity, every education, and every income level in every part of the United States. This is important. This is important. Because there is no woman who in the United States decides to give childbirth under the supervision of the medical industrial complex that's immune to this. This is a serious problem. So the list of women who died in childbirth is teachers, insurance brokers, journalists, a spokeswoman for Yellowstone National Park, a co-founder of YouTube channel, uh, more than a dozen doctors and nurses. So there's a lot of death here going on among people who have every advantage financially and access to medical care. So what did they die from? This says they died from cardiomyopathy and other heart problems, massive hemorrhage. Again, if a woman comes to, comes to a delivery dehydrated and with not enough weight gain, then without enough weight gain, she doesn't have enough blood volume circulating. And when she has a massive hemorrhage, she's more likely to die. Blood clots, again, if you take this lady and don't give her food and water, for even the 24 hours before she delivers, she's going to have blood clots. Infections and pregnancy-induced hypertension as well are other causes, not as rare. But again, all of these things they're pointing out are caused by dehydration and malnutrition. And I said, many died days or even weeks after leaving the hospital. Oh, pause right there. How are you going to die days or weeks after leaving the hospital? And most of these ladies aren't even taking medicine. So what's the problem? I can't tell you the woman I have talked to. And as soon as that baby is out, what are they doing? They're on a friggin' diet. They are trying to cut back on what they drink and eat so they can lose weight back to their pre-pregnancy shape. And so these, this habit or cultural practice is what leads to these deaths days or weeks after leaving the hospital. So this way it's going to say, I'm going to breastfeed, let this baby suck liquid out of me, but I'm not going to put liquid in, or increase my nutrition. And so here's another bombshell. Many, maternal mortality is commonplace so that three new mothers who died, including Lauren, were cared for by the same OBGYN. Well, well, wait a minute. Here is... Here's a red flag right here. Here is a red flag right here. So the same doctor had three maternal deaths. you got to let that thing sink in. So why is that so amazing? Well, it's so amazing because the average OBGYN only delivers 500 ladies in a year. In a year, only delivers 500 ladies. 
So, if 18 per 100,000 live births, this is another statistic I found, 18 per 100,000 live births is what the maternal death rate is. This guy has three maternal death rates in a year. And the average OBGYN's uh, corrective figure delivers only 300 babies a year. Then he would have to have delivered at least 16,000 babies in order to have even an average death rate. So in other words, his death rate is 55.6 times the national average for OBGYNs. That's a lot of deaths. So this guy is a deadly obstetrician gynecologist. And she picked him. Why? He was a friend of the family. He trained with her husband. So this obstetrician gynecologist has a death rate 55.6 times the already high national average for death in the United States. So this guy is literally a walking mortuary. The only reason to see him for your, your prenatal care is you've got a death wish. All right, so let's see what they say. The reasons for higher maternal mortality in the United States is many fold. Now, I just told you how she died, right? She died because of obedience and because they didn't allow her to eat during induction, and she obeyed their rule, and she didn't gain enough weight during her pregnancy. That's how she died. That's why she died. Now, just uh, in case you want some documentation here, um, the standard care for induction you probably won't be allowed to eat much. This comes to shock to a lot of women. The prospect of not eating for even a few hours was frightening to me as a pregnant woman. And it should be. That's dangerous. The reasons birthing centers may prohibit a woman from eating during labor include the nausea and vomiting that are a natural part of labor. No. If you starve this lady during labor, you're going to bring on the nausea and vomiting. You're also going to bring on fetal distress along with the increased risk of a C-section. Yeah. If your midwife or doctor allows it, only if they allow it, eat a hearty breakfast before your induction to keep your energy up. So this recording is going to be ended in 30 minutes, but we're going to keep going for the full hour. So we have here just a a admission that um, women are being starved during pregnancy. And again, the mortality rate in the U.S. is rising and all around the world, every place else, it's falling. Even in Portugal, it's falling. So the uh, worsening numbers of uh, mortality numbers contrast sharply with the impressive progress in saving babies' lives. Now, again, that number is also an illusion because what happens? These babies that would have died in childbirth are detected and aborted um, in the screening process. And so these lives are not um, being saved at all. But even with that practice, the number of babies who die annually in the United States, 23,000, greatly exceeds the number of expectant and new mothers will die, but the rate is narrowing. So women are dying in greater and greater numbers. And so they go on to talk about how this gap is widening. 
And when we went to discharge, they routinely receive information about how to breastfeed and what to do if their newborn is sick, but not necessarily how to tell if they need medical attention themselves. But wait, this lady died in the hospital. She died in the hospital. She did not die because they sent her home without instruction. And so now they're saying, well, giving ladies instructions when they go home is going to prevent maternal mortality. But wait, it's not going to prevent this death that we talked about. And so in 2009, Joint Commission to credit 21,000 healthcare facilities in the U.S. adopted a series of prenatal core measures for national standards that have been shown to reduce complications and provide, improve patient outcomes. Four of the measures are aimed at making sure the baby is healthy. Only one is bringing down a C-section rate addresses maternal health. So meanwhile, life-saving practices that have become widely accepted in other affluent countries and in a few states, notably California, have yet to take hold in many American hospitals. Take the example of preeclampsia, a type of high blood pressure that occurs only in pregnancy or the postpartum period and can lead to seizures and strokes. Around the world, it kills an estimated five women an hour, but in developed countries, it's highly treatable. The key is to act quickly. So by standardizing its approach, Britain has reduced preeclampsia deaths to one in a million. Two deaths in a four-year period. In the U.S., on the other hand, the same condition accounts for 8% of maternal deaths or 70 women a year. So compare this, two deaths in two years to 50 to 70 deaths a year, including, of course, poor Lauren that we're talking about. So Lauren McCarthy's, uh, okay, she's a teenager, um, she became a model for a series of books based on Louisa May Alcott's classic, Little Women. And uh, she appeared on the covers of four books, looking very much the proper uh, lady. And, you know, in high school, she decided to become a nurse. And after graduation, she ended up at the very hospital where she died. And uh, the dynamic young lady and nurse, top hospital executive needed surgery. Larry recalled he would pay Lauren the ultimate compliment, picking her as one of the two private duty nurses to help oversee his care. And so she was one popular lady and capable. So Larry Bloomstein, oh, that would be the husband, who joined the unit as an orthopedic surgical resident in 2004 was dazzled. He liked her independent streak and her level-headedness. And, you know, she had a calmness about her and, you know, and he was just totally smitten. And so then she liked him. She met this guy. He's a doctor. He's very kind. And they married five years later. Okay. So uh, the hospital had the fifth busiest maternity department in the state, delivering 5,400 babies in 2016. They earned an A grade from a nonprofit that pro- promote safety and health care, and met full safety standards in critical areas of maternity care, such as C-section rates, early elected delivery, and, of course, this NICU, where the victim worked, uh, was a level three facility for high-risk newborns, and it was just a great hospital. So with NICU nursing, um, they said you'd be either you're good or you're not any good, and this lady who died in childbirth was a very good NICU that's neonatal, a neonatal intensive care unit nurse. 
So she loves to work. She bonded with the babies. She loved meeting the mom for coffee and even babysitting on occasion. And she cherished the deep friendships at a place like the neonatal intensive care unit forged. And so um, another person she liked was her OBGYN. He had come to come there as a resident around the same time as her husband, and um, he had families uh, who had medical degrees. Two uncles and two brothers also were doctors, and they all thought he was very personable and a great guy, which I'm sure he was, by the way. And she was good friends with uh, my wife and felt very comfortable with me, says her OBGYN. He would recall a 2015 court deposition, so there was a suit. When ladies die in childbirth, there's always a lawsuit. As I said, 83% of the time, it's the doctor The doctor did it. So after his residency, he joined the OBGYN Associates. Um, it's part of a movement that aimed to reduce the number of C-sections, which tend to have more difficult recoveries and more complications. So instead of a C-section rate of 37%, this hospital C-section rate was only 21%. And so... The neonatal nurses had plenty of opportunity to observe this doctor, and um, they always uh, they felt that he was a great doctor. And so she was so impressed with him, she chose him as her own doctor, and she recommended him to her best friend. And um, her best friend, of course, was uh, uh, ended up dying. And so. Um, the neonatal nurses were focused on their own delicate patients, these little babies. And once a friend asked Lauren, who's the victim here, how do you deal with babies that don't make it? It's got to be bad. Lauren replied, yeah, but we save more than we lose. And when a 29-year-old special education teacher contracted a grisly infection a few days after giving birth to her first child and died, the tragedy didn't register with Lauren, who was then three months pregnant herself. And so um, this lady's pregnancy had been like Lauren's, textbook perfect, and she's living a nine-pound um, baby. And she, was re- and she was sent home, and she was readmitted soon with excruciating severe pain and the diagnosis of necrotizing fasciitis commonly known as flesh-eating bacteria. Two days later, she was dead. Now, the same doctor who delivered uh, Lauren's baby, Lauren died, of course, authorized the discharge of this lady from the hospital. This lady ultimately died of an infection that, that was undetected. And so according to court documents, she said nurses failed to inform him about Hansen's symptoms. And if he'd known her vital signs were not stable, he would not have released her. Now, the hospital and nurses eventually settled for $1.5 million. The suit against this, that will be Joanne, is still pending. So this doctor is involved in a lot of cases where the ladies die. So signs that something is wrong. So the husband, first inkling something was seriously wrong, came 90 minutes after she gave birth. Okay, so he, he missed the sharp pain, which is the first sign of dehydration. He missed that her weight gain during her pregnancy was between 5 and 20 pounds too little. So, you know, this is a lot of trust these people are putting into the medical industrial complex. He had accompanied um, 
his newborn daughter to the nursery to be weighed and measured and given the usual barrage of tests for newborns. But his wife had not eaten since breakfast. Okay, so, so this is severe, severe dehydration. So this lady had not eaten since morning, and now he comes back after dinner, called after 5 p.m. She still hasn't eaten anything. And she didn't eat anything the day before, right, because she's being induced. And so, by the way, once you get into severe dehydration, you actually lose your appetite. And so she said she didn't feel good. She pointed to a spot, a spot above her abdomen and just below her sternum, close to where she felt the stabbing sensation during labor. Again, dehydration. She goes, I've got pain that's coming back. And so Larry Bennett, uh, this is her husband, had been at his wife's side much of the previous 24 hours. And so now we're coming up on, like I said, 24 hours with nothing to eat or drink. And for a pregnant lady, or even one that's just given birth, this is an unsafe situation. Unsafe situation. Conscious that his role was husband rather than doctor, he tried not to overstep. Now, another thing. Act of obedience, extreme obedience. Had he acted right then, he could have saved his own wife's life. Yes, he could have. If she had an IV attached, he could have looked, made sure it was salt water or salt water and sugar, flicked that lever, opened it wide open, and he'd have a wife. But no. He was conscious of his role and did not want to overstep. Now, I'm going to tell you, I've been in the hospital a couple of times where I've saved a relative's life by flicking that IV and opening that fluid and letting it go in. I didn't see any boundary that allowed me to stand by and watch a relative or friend drop dead. Obviously, you have to know what you're doing. You've got to look, check the bag, what's in it, you know. But what she needed was fluids, and as a trauma surgeon, um, had he been thinking in terms of trauma surgery, he might have picked up on this. He says, well, I see this a lot. We do a lot of belly surgery. This is definitely reflux. This is what the OBGYN said. Husband uh, recalls that the doctor then ordered antacid and a pain narcotic called dilaudid, just the worst thing he could do. And, of course, the patient vomited these up. So, in other words, the antacid was no, didn't help. The narcotic didn't help because, of course, she puked them up, back up. And the um, narcotic actually causes puking. So he took this dehydrated lady and just literally made her situation worse. So her pain was soon a 10 out of 10. Now, again, I've taken people whose pain is 10 out of 10, given them IV fluid, just IV fluid, no painkiller, IV fluid, and it brings that 10 down to a 4. That is absolutely life-saving. In this case, it was not done. Okay, so... Let's go on and see the tragic demise of poor, unfortunate Lauren. And so the nurses, uh, the pain is so excruciating, the nurses noted that pain is unable, patient is unable to stay still, just as ominously, that means bad, bad signs, your blood pressure was, was spiking. And of course, when you have severe dehydration, just before the blood vessels collapse and you die, your heart makes one big Hail Mary attempt to constrict all the blood vessels and get as much fluid as it can to vital organs. An hour after Haley's birth, 
sorry, the baby's birth, the blood pressure reading was 160 over 95. It's pretty high for a pregnant lady. After that, 169 over 108. Again, the heart is just trying to, you know, make an incredible last stand to save her life. And the doctors are standing by watching, of course. So at her, fir- at her final prenatal appointment, her reading had been just 118 over 69. In other words, she was uh, well hydrated, had lots to drink. Obstetrics was not her husband's specialty, but he knew enough to ask the nurse, could this be preeclampsia? Of course, he asked the wrong question. The correct question was, could this be dehydration? So uh, preeclampsia, pregnancy-related hypertension, is a little understood condition that affects 5% of expectant or new mothers in the U.S., about 200,000 women a year. It can strike anyone out of the blue. It can strike anyone out of the blue. So in other words, a lack of money is not the cause of this because this happens to wealthy people. But they say the risk is higher for African Americans. Again, this is telling everyone else, don't worry, go back to sleep, don't think about this, go back to sleep. So of black people with obesity, diabetes, kidney disease, and mothers over the age of 40. So none of this fit, fit the victim in this case. So why would she have this? And that's what needs to be explained. If they can't explain the eclampsia in this particular case, then their explanations are just basically worthless. And so most common during the second half of pregnancy, but can develop in the days or weeks after childbirth and can become very dangerous very quickly. Because the traditional treatment for preeclampsia is to deliver as soon as possible, babies are often premature and end up in the NICU like the one where this dead victim worked. Now, in the old days, see, I'm old enough, I can tell you about the old days. The old days, that'd be the 70s. Preeclampsia was always, after lady delivered, boom, done. Why? As soon as lady delivered, what did she get? She got a huge meal and lots to drink. That was what was done immediately after, after uh, delivery. In fact, that lady was eating within an hour of, of her delivery. And these ladies are hungry, and they fed them. But not nowadays, oh no. And this lady did not eat, as, we, as her husband mentioned. Okay, so as her husband suspected, her blood pressure readings were well past the danger point. What he didn't know was that they'd been abnormally high since she entered the hospital. They told her not to eat or drink that morning. This is the protocol for induction of labor. So according to admission paperwork, during labor she had 21 systolic readings at or above 140 and 13 at or above 90. These are the definition of preeclampsia, which is a condition her OBGYN said she did not have. He said she had indigestion. So this is 